Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Hello, everybody. Today, we're welcoming back to the show, Charles Hughes Smith. Hello, Charles. Hey, hi. Hi. Listen, uh, big topic today. We're going to talk about the dollar. I know you have a piece up recently. Uh, where you're talking about, uh, it's entitled, The Tailwinds Pushing the Dollar Higher. And I do want to talk about the dollar. There's going to be a lot of terms in here. I want to make sure we define them carefully, uh, because this is a really important topic. There's, uh, you know, certainly for a whole period of my early upbringing in all things financial, I was very much worried about the value of the dollar. We're all concerned about purchasing power, but the dollar is measured against other currencies that have been floating freely ever since the demise of the Bretton Woods. In uh, in, uh, in the uh, sorry, ever since the demise of the Bretton Woods exchange system, and then later with the cutting of the gold standard entirely with the demise of Bretton Woods too, in '71. So. Where do we start? I, let me start with this paragraph that you wrote, in one of the opening paragraphs to that piece. It reads like this. I know this is as welcome in many circles as a flashbang tossed on the table in a swank dinner party, but the U.S. dollar is going a lot higher over the next few years. For a variety of reasons, many observers expect the dollar to decline against other currencies and gold, the one apples-to-apples measure of a currency's international purchasing power. Uh, so... What are those reasons that you expect the dollar to go higher? Well, Chris, let's, um, I would start um, like I did with the piece of why do so many people expect it to either decline or actually collapse in value? And because the, those, those reasons are uh, intuitively very uh, compelling. And, of course, one is that our uh, central bank, the Federal Reserve, is printing lots and lots of money, roughly tripling you know, its balance sheet from about a trillion before um, the financial meltdown in 2008 to like 3.2 trillion now. And so it's, it's natural when we think um, that if a bunch of, of money is being printed, then it's going to depreciate. The other reason that um, a lot of people think the dollar should go down or will go down is that they believe that our central bank, the Federal Reserve, wants the dollar to go down as a way of boosting um, American exports. <clears throat> and, and this is also um, intuitively uh, appealing because we're in a, a global economy where virtually everybody is trying to export more as a way to help their domestic economy. Um, d- d- is that clear so far? <laughs> well, it is, absolutely. And, and, and I don't think it's too much to say that, that every central bank has it in their interest to maintain at least relative parity with other currencies in that no central bank wants to be put in the position of having its currency appreciate strongly because your business community, your exporters will really scream. And for a nation that is indebted, having your currency strengthened just means that in the future you have to pay off more of those debts in stronger dollars. Uh, and so that's something I think that the government itself, not just the Fed, but, but the U.S. government, would absolutely love to repay its debts in the future with cheaper currency, not more expensive currency. So I, I'm on the side of those who believe that there are very strong interests at the central banking level to keeping currencies at least in parity or in check with other currencies, if not weaker than. And of course, this uh, Bank of Japan 
openly trying to debase its currency in order to uh, goose its export markets. Uh, and uh, the Swiss National Bank doing uh, all it can, printing hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of its own Swiss franc in an effort to keep their currency down, but for a different reason, because people are piling into that as a safe haven country. And so uh, perhaps writ small or seeing that dynamic of flight to safety into uh, Switzerland as, as a real-time dynamic that's playing out. But let's start here with, with weaker currency. I'm on the side of those who do think that central banks love weak currencies. Um, I think that um, it might be a good time to um, mention uh, Triffin's Dilemma, also call, uh, called Triffin's um, Paradox, which was a theory, if you will, uh, put forward by an economist um, in the 60s that basically says this. When you have a reserve currency, that currency serves both your domestic economy and the international you know, global economy. And those two audiences have different needs and expectations of that currency. And so you're going to have conflict. You're not going to be able necessarily to satisfy the needs of your users of your currency in your domestic economy and in the international. And so if we follow that up, um, we, have to, we start asking questions like, well, let's say the dollar strengthened against other currencies. Now, would that, would that necessarily trigger inflation or deflation in our own economy? And, and the answer then starts leading into a lot of complicated issues like, well, what do, we, what do we import that would suddenly get cheaper if the dollar rose? And, of course, most of what we import is electronics from Asia and, um, and oil. You know, we're a big Im- importer of energy. And so if the energy dropped, that would, that would actually be deflationary in our domestic economy. But we have to remember that um, imports are like about, you know, 20% of the, of the U.S. economy or the GDP, and exports are like about 13 14%. So our economy is still largely domestic, as is Japan's, uh, believe it or not. You know, they're very export-dependent, but their exports are around 15% of their economy as well. Where, like, say, Germany is 40% of their economy is exports. They are massively, totally dependent on exports. So that's another kind of mix, you know, of, of like, well, how dependent is somebody on exports and imports? And so what happens to their currency? And as what I, what, what I went on to say in the article was, the chief export of the United States is dollars. <laughs> that's what we're pushing out into the world. Yeah, so, yeah we have about $7 trillion that we've uh, managed to uh, export so far. <laughs> and, um, you know, my my position is, as my understanding of how the reserve currency works is, that the demand for um, to, uh, an international currency that everybody can trade is, is the reason for a reserve currency to exist. And, um, and the U.S. got it by default as being the last man standing in World War II and by having, uh, at the time, enough gold to actually back the currency so everyone felt that this was, you know, they could trade this and know that it was going to have the same value the following day. And so as the world um, economy developed, and especially when, when China entered um, you know, global trade in the early 90s, the need for currency it, to facilitate that trade rose dramatically. And to me, that's a causal link to why the U.S. started running massive trade deficits.
All right, so let me let me just back up here for a second and define a reserve currency and, and these reserve balances because we use the term a lot, and I think understanding it's important. It, there's nothing fancy about it. There is no such thing as a reserve dollar. It's not a special red piece of paper with a, a dollar on it. It's, it's regular old greenbacks, and, and it's this simple. Uh, if you have two countries that are trading with one another, one's a net importer, the other's a net exporter, over time, uh, one country is going to uh, accumulate currency reserves. So the net exporting country ends up accumulating a lot of excess currency from the country that is doing the importing. So China right now is the number one, by far, holder of excess reserves because it is by far the number one uh, exporting nation uh, in terms of aggregate volume. So as, as export dependent as as Germany is, China's just a whole lot bigger. So guess what? Uh, China has a whole lot of US dollars that it's sort of sitting on. And and the idea of a reserve currency, as you've just articulated it, is, is to say that, listen, uh, there needs to be a currency out there so that countries can balance trade against one another. When you're not doing that with gold, which we stopped in 1971, as I understand Triffin's dilemma is that, well, if you want trade to expand, then by definition, the reserve balances have to expand. And if that happens, then it's incumbent on one country, typically the reserve currency country, to be exporting an increasing number of currency units. Is that about right? Sounds right to me. All right. So there, there was another thing that sort of came along with that, though, um, which is if we take Triffin's insight, uh, and then we, we go back to um, Richard Cantillon, a uh, pre-classical 18th century economist. He, he noted he was the first to sort of describe the, the concept of seniorage, which tells us that money is not neutral. And here's what that concept means to me. Um, new money enters the economy, it gets spent, right? So the United States print dollars, exports them, they get spent out into circulation. Uh, whether that happens domestically or internationally, you know, when, when, when money is first created, it goes out there. And so the first thing that happens is that, that you've now increased the supply of money through printing, and that is dilutive to, uh, to the existing money supply. But the person who gets to spend it first has the greatest advantage in this game. Uh, the French ended up coining the term seniorage, meaning that the king could print the money and, and spend it. The king would get all the benefit of that money because it just got printed and, and spent. Uh, but uh, general inflation, the person who got to that who got that money last, say savers and people at the very end of the food chain here, uh, they they bore the brunt of of the loss and dilution of that purchasing power. So, with the United States dollar being printed in larger and larger quantities, and we have more and more and more of them being printed into circulation and being exported to the world, isn't that dilutive to the overall? stock of dollars out there? Well, I think there's a couple of other issues we, we have to kind of funnel into um, our calculation of that. And one is um, what we might call dead money. And so the, the, the dynamic I see in, in money printing in the domestic economy is um, trillions of dollars are being destroyed as, um, as uh, debtors uh, default and um, banks write down um, debts, and, and they're so-called deleveraging. And a lot of people go, well, that's, that doesn't count because that's paper money. Well, I have friends who have, um, you know, um, HELOCs, you know, home equity lines of credit, mm -hmm. and so on. No, the money was real. <laughs> they took it out, and they spent it. Okay, so when people talk about, oh, well, you can't, you can't say that money's being destroyed when, 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 when defaults go on. Oh, yeah, money is destroyed, and that's why the banks in, the, in America are insolvent. 
<laughs> is that their collateral has lost value. That that money's destroyed. So, in a way, where the Fed is, is is sort of replacing money that's already been um, destroyed elsewhere. But what's really destructive about the Fed policy is the money that's being destroyed came out of um, households' pockets as well as the banks, and yet all the money that's being printed just ends up in bank reserves. And we and um, we can see that in the money velocity. You know that there's just the the money velocity in the United States is plummeting, as as money as a lot of money sits in in like as dead money. So you can say, well, if we print a whole bunch of money and it just sits in um, a bank vault and it doesn't enter the real economy, then it's going to be really difficult for that money to um, create inflation. And so it's it's kind of like not just creating the money, but what happens to it. And so. Um, that's that's one issue to to think through, you know. And the other one is just the the um, the sort of scale of everything, you know. That if you have a two hundred and ten trillion dollar global economy, uh, roughly sixty seventy trillion GDP, and so the Fed prints a trillion dollars, well, you know, if it's dissipated if throughout that size of an economy, then it, it's not going to have the same impact that people expect that it would, in, like, in a, in a domestic economy. So there's just, you know, we have to kind of think about the scale of things. Like a trillion dollars globally is just not very much money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, so let's separate the issues then. So uh, uh, international versus domestic. Uh, one of the things that I know people have been concerned about, and I've been concerned about, is if is if there was ever sort of a, a largish run on the dollar. Like we we could envision this happening now around the euro, for instance. So. Cyprus is there. Uh, it's clearly an unresolved issue. If it turns out that push comes to shove and Cyprus leaves the euro, maybe other people leave the euro, and all of a sudden the euro experiment is over. And uh, at that point, you might discover a lot of people are not that interested in holding the euro. They'll, they'll take anything else they could possibly get their hands on. And uh, as was discussed in a recent comment thread at the site, uh, there's trillions and trillions of euros out there. If even a trillion of them decided to go somewhere and do something, where would they go? Uh, there aren't that many markets you can you can go to, and, and so the dollar, you know, in terms of its its value, it's it compared to other currencies. So when you say the dollar's rising or falling, that's not in general, and that's not against anything tangible. It's actually against a basket of currencies, principally which consists of the euro, the yen, the pound sterling, a couple other minor ones in in per small percentage terms. But that's we're really comparing it um, against the yen and, and European money. So. So if the dollar is rising or falling, the dollar could clearly rise a lot based on uh, you know a, a flight to safety away from a, a falling eurozone. And I submit to you that's not an awesome thing. Uh, it's true that our oil will be cheaper, but a lot, uh, I think it's a little over 42% was the last study I read, it was in 2010. 42% of all the revenues from the S&P 500 come from overseas, and a big portion of that comes from Europe. So if the dollar is suddenly gaining in strength against uh, the European markets, what's going to happen is the portion of the revenues that the companies get from those markets will then have to be repriced, repatriated back into a much more expensive currency, meaning, uh, it, it, let me put it this way, if you were earning 10% as McDonald's uh, on a net basis and all of a sudden in Europe and all of a sudden the dollar appreciates 10%, your net income just went to zero, very roughly speaking, but, but that's the dynamic at play here. So how, no, how do you that, look at that? Yeah, Chris, I think that... Um I find this issue um, is sort of like a wormhole because when you actually go down the wormhole and try to figure out what the U.S. exports, I've found um, it to be um, 
very confusing. Like, for instance, when Boeing books a sale of a 787 uh, aircraft, it um, it's an export. But maybe a third of that aircraft is actually manufactured in the U.S. I mean, most of the components um, are made in Japan, a lot of the big ones, and they're sourced um, from Japan and um, Europe for one specific reason, in order to gain sales in those markets. And so... In a company like IBM, they sell um, their services overseas, and um, that's why they have staff there. <laughs> you know that their revenues come from overseas, but those are those revenues are actually sourced and booked in the local currency. And so that's where when we say that um, Apple sells an iPad to Europe, you know that's counted as an export. But m- most the, in, the whole iPad is actually built in China, and so. The, you know, you start trying to figure out exactly what's priced in dollars, and you find that there's not a lot of the corporate supply chain that's actually priced in dollars, nor is there that much of the sales that is actually sold in dollars. You know, stuff is sold locally. So you get an IBM salesman in China. He's not selling somebody something in dollars. That contract is signed, and it's paid in renminbi and, and ditto in, in Europe and so on. So I kind of get the feeling and that um, global trade has become so complicated that the Commerce Department, who's supposed to track exports, has completely lost it. You know, that, 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 that what, they're pre- what they're presenting as, as exports is so confused and muddled with stuff from Mexico and, and um, sourced from all over and in other currencies. I think we might be overstating the, the value of that, except when the profit is stated back in dollars. Well, yeah. we, we understate it and overstate it in, in a variety of directions because of things that are made here but sold elsewhere and made elsewhere but sold here. I, I agree. The, the import-export thing is, is goofy. But in your perfect example of IBM or McDonald's or anybody else who is operating within a theater country that's in Europe, it's in China, it's somewhere else, they are wholly sourcing the product that they're selling from those markets and so the revenues and everything are priced in those local dollars or, uh, sorry, local euros, local uh, renminbi, whatever it is. Now, that's an easy case to understand. So if the dollar is strengthening a lot, the, the, the repatriation of those corporate revenues really suffers by a corresponding amount and vice versa. So it's, uh, uh, that's one of the reasons that we don't want a rising dollar. And, and another one is that um, uh, let's think about it in terms of treasury debt. So... So you're a European country. Uh, somehow, let's imagine that Europe has exposure to about a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasury debt. And uh, let's imagine the dollar climbs by 15%. The foreign holders of that debt are thrilled because they just got 15% more of their local currency in the exchange. But the U.S. just exported about $150 billion of purchasing power in that, in that arrangement. And it makes treasuries less competitive uh, be, you know, when, they, when they're thinking about rebuying them because all of a sudden you know, it takes a lot more euros to buy an equivalent amount of dollars. Uh, uh, it's going to have huge uh, impacts on, on the overall purchasing of our debt market. So this is like, a, a, I feel like we're doing something of a disservice by diving into this wormhole because it is huge and it is hairy and it is complicated and there's a lot of moving pieces. So... Uh, if we back way up, you know, this is, why did the Cypress banks go down? Because uh, their assets and liabilities mismatched. Assets were exceeded by liabilities. Uh, when we look at the overall situation of the United States, I see a country which has its assets exceeded grandly by its liabilities, especially at the federal government level. And I don't know how you fix that, except by defaulting on those obligations 
printing money or taxing the heck out of people in attempt to close that that gap in the case of the U.S. government. Don't you do you do you think the Federal Reserve will print or stand by for a default in, in that scenario? Well, um, <laughs> that I, I think that its ability to print is going to be politically constrained, which is one of the reasons why I think the dollar will rise. You know, um, mm. because okay. I think the demand, and I don't mean to dodge that that topic, but. Um, Kind of going back to the dollar, I think that there's two fundamental um, dynamics I want to bring up here in the podcast, so I might as well do it now. One is, I think that we can look at the dollar and other currencies and, and gold and, and virtually every product and service in terms of supply and demand. And so what we're really coming to the dollar is we're, we're saying, okay, there's X amount of dollars in existence, and they're printing X amount every year and exporting it. Is the demand greater than the supply increase? And if the demand is actually greater than the supply increase, then you're going to get a, a you're going to get a price increase in whatever that is, you know. Um, and um, you know, fundamentally, we can say why did gold uh, basically triple from like 500 bucks an ounce in like 2004 or five, and um, how come it's now 1600? Well, the demand you know exceeded the supply and so we get a price increase and so the the dollar is just like any other commodity it it will respond to, to supply and demand and so my basic premise is it boils down to that very simple thing i think as the euro and yen holders realize they're going to they're looking at a 30% haircut in value by holding their currency or any asset in those currencies they're going to want to find something else and a certain amount of that demand will go for gold and silver, platinum, um, you know, uh, condos in um, New York, you know, whatever they can get their hands on, it's real. But there's another sort of demand for, um, like, a tradable currency. And so that's why the dollar would have value, perhaps, you know, as, along with the Swiss franc and, and, and so on. And so that supply and demand thing is kind of like what I see pushing the dollar you know, um, the value. And so I think um, the, the longer-term issues of that will sort themselves out, I think, as, as the euro either collapses or um, is divided into two currencies or whatever happens to it, when it stabilizes, then we'll have a different picture, I think, about the value of the dollar versus the other currencies. And, and the other point I want to bring up is I know this sounds, um, it sounds um, bizarre, perhaps, to many um, listeners, but the dollar at present is indispensable in the global economy. And so not because it's so wonderful or America's so wonderful or, you know, it, it's because we need a reserve currency that everybody can transparently value on the black market. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's not just an official thing where you have to go to the bank. The dollar has value everywhere from Burma to Nigeria because it always has a, a transparent value on the black market. And there has to be a currency that, or maybe a, a set of currencies, but there's got to be something that acts in that role. And it doesn't just serve the domestic economy. You know, it serves every domestic economy equally. And so if, if it's not the dollar, then it has to be something else. And then the question is, what could be that something else? And then I run into a problem when I start thinking about a gold-backed currency. Like, let's say Russia um, issued a, a gold-backed ruple because they're buying a lot of gold. Well, I don't think that would go into circulation. As soon as I got one, I'd put it in my um, drawer or my, my bank vault because it's as good as gold. 
so it's not going to go into circulation. So that's the problem with like a gold-backed currency. It's not going to have enough of it, and it's it's um, to act as a as a trading currency. You know, so we have that old monetary problem here. Money is a store of value, and yet it's also a means of exchange. And so that that's another part of this thing. You know, the dollar acts as both. It's a weak it's a weak holder of value. We all know that. But it nonetheless is still uh, it's still an active holder of some value, at least over the short term. You know, like if you're going to trade, you know it's going to still have value in a, in a month when you unload it to do some other kind of trading. You know, and then it's also a means of exchange. So that's kind of my precy of of why the uh, why the dollar could rise against other currencies. I, I can see the dollar rising over the near term, by which I mean zero to five years as things unfold and, and, and it's an original flight to safety, but it's sort of a, a supernova um, construct for me where, you know, at first everything rushes back in towards the center, but then poof, it blows out in a rather extraordinary fashion. And the reason I think there's that stage two to this whole thing is because of that asset liability mismatch. There is just no possible way to pencil out the United States uh, basic fundamental economic needs. We lived, we lived well beyond our means for 40 years. And we did that through debt borrowing. And it's you can see it in charts that show a steady rise of debt to GDP starting in the early 1980s. And that's been a condition we've lived with for a long time. But I'm of the Austrian slash common sense persuasion, which says, well, you can't constantly increase your debts compared to your income. And you can only do that so long as you have periods of robust growth to sort of entertain the illusion that you can perpetuate this. I think for a variety of reasons, we are in a structural low growth period, the debt overhang being one, expensive energy being another, uh, increased international competition for limited resources, including labor uh, and capital being a third. So there's a variety of things I think that are that are going to feed into a lower growth profile. And yet the... Um, the actions of the Federal Reserve at all, including Bank of Japan, England, ECB, etc., are to uh, attempt to get money and credit creation back on their former trajectories. And they've got money creation back on their trajectory, but as you mentioned, a lot of that stuff is getting stuffed away. Uh, but it's parabolic and awesome. Uh, credit, not so much. You know, the, the, as much as the public side in, in all the various governments, Japan, UK, Europe, everybody, US have been trying to uh, absorb that lack of credit creation. They have not been able to make up for a loss of private credit creation, principally, oddly, in the shadow banking system was the largest loss of uh, credit creation. Corporations, households, you know, sort of slowed down, but, but didn't entirely stop and fully deleverage at this point. So as I look at all this, I, I'm thinking, the dollar has utility at this point in time. It'll probably have increased utility as things get even more uncertain. But when that dust settles, ultimately people are going to get back to this fundamental equation, which is that money has to exist in balance to wealth. And I don't confuse money and wealth. Uh, John Michael Greer did a great job parsing those two concepts apart in a piece, I don't know, came out a few weeks back. And and you know, there, there's always been that, that, that relationship between money and wealth and gold and a gold standard did a great job of providing an automatic leveling function. We broke away from that, thought we could do better uh, by being sophisticated and managing a world floating exchange rate system. And yet what we found was what we perpetuated were massive imbalances. And you know the Swiss National Bank thing I've talked about, that's just them fighting a small trickle of a flood, a tsunami of, of money that's coming into their country, and they're having to fight that. We have hot money, 
going everywhere, hither and yon, potentially post-Cyprus, uh, yon, uh, it, with greater increasing uh, speed. And it's a fairly, uh, it's a dynamic and at times very unstable system. And I'm not entirely convinced that the dollar um, represents an inviolable central peg to that system that will that will prove immune to the sorts of um, uh, uh, trials and tribulations that have that have have taken out other past empire-centric reserve currencies, most notably and recently the British pound. Yeah, I, I agree, Chris, and and perhaps we should. Um uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and speculate on some timelines here because I think that's really what we're talking about. I, I, I'm kind of talking about between now and say 2015 when I when I think um, I'm kind of anticipating that the European crisis will be will reach some sort of end game within a couple years, and I think Japan will be also in that. And China has its problems, and and. Um, uh, there's going to be a lot of things that will probably come to a head somewhere in the 2014 to 16 um, time frame. And then I think we're going to get some sort of restabilization um, because hundreds of, you know, probably tens of trillions of dollars of collateral will be recognized as worthless. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's going to be this gigantic reset. Now, beyond that, then I think the picture gets a lot darker. And I totally agree with you that the dollar being this sort of. Um, uh, the reserve currency, because no one else has a, has a good alternative, that's not a that's not a stable system, and that eventually there will be um, some sort of more stable system, whether it'll be a series of currencies or a, a gigantic commodity backed currency. Um, there could be a lot of different solutions, and I think um, that will probably arise somewhere between 2015 and 2020. If it doesn't, then the reset will simply um, uh, build up another head of, of crisis, and then we'll get another crisis in 2020, you know, the early 2020s. And that's also possible. And then we'll have to get a whole new system by then because I can't see the current thing lasting another more than 10 or 12 years. <laughs> that, that's my personal opinion. All right. And I have no basis for that. So, But just to kind of clarify, I see the dollar potentially gaining just as a flight to safety occurs as these other countries, which have even more severe problems than the U.S., um, that their, their games run to an end, and um, it's game over for a lot of debt and collateral that get wiped out. And then we have another chance at, at making a better system, and if we don't, then we'll get another crisis in, in another five years, is kind of how I would say it. I, I don't know. What do you think time-wise? Well, the timing is is interesting. All of this is dragged out a lot longer than I thought, so I tend to just tack a few years onto my my estimates now. Um, and, and it makes sense. The, the the inertia in this flywheel is extraordinary, and and the desire to preserve the status quo is extraordinary, and the desire not to see this thing fall apart is extraordinary. And so that's why we've seen every possible rule that needs to be bent, broken, misinterpreted, or forgotten about uh, that's happened. And, and I think that'll continue. I, I really think it's all bets are off. Uh, I, you know, the Fed's all in, this is do or die, you know, we can't allow this thing to fall apart. And, and so um, my general view is that I think things continue kind of as they are. That's the 80, 90% probability. But I hold out a fairly significant probability, maybe 10%, that some event comes along that just changes everything and uh, really tips this thing over. And, and that's my view of how, how these uh, events tend to unfold. Nothing, 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 clunk, 
the bowling ball goes down one more fl- set of stairs and and uh, then we all sort of adjust to that that new place wherever that happens to be and so I'm in general agreement that things sort of hold together and then there'll be some other reset when that's going to happen I don't know because uh, you know just current trends it could be years away many years uh, but I know that these things tend to um, uh, coast and then have a sudden very dramatic reset uh, moment that, that catches almost everybody by surprise. And that's the nature of complex systems. So, so that's, that's just, that's incredible. And um, it, a way to sort of summarize this for me is when I looked around across the world, as I look across the, the global landscape and I ask, all right, relative basis, where do I want to be in this story? Uh, for a lot of reasons, I want to be right here in the United States for reasons of round resources, but also flexibility to deal with things, uh, the ability to, um, if we have to, just really shred everything and start back over again. Uh, I, I truly think that, that the United States has, I, I would not want to be in Japan uh, around the sets of issues that are going on there. I think they're in for a really tough uh, set of conditions with demographics, with their debt to GDP ratios. Uh, you know, it's just, it's an energy issues. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, Europe for a whole different sets of reasons. You know, that's not, I can't say Europe in general because there's parts of Europe I, I think would be very livable and other parts I just, you, I would not want to be in for uh, structural reasons. So I'm going to have to just waffle on that one a little bit. I'm, I, I, I truly think that, that we could see a, a very interesting cathartic moment in the financial system this year that would uh, reestablish uh, some existing status quo elements. And uh, I'm, I'm convinced that the 20 teens, this has always been my mantra, the 20 teens are gonna be extraordinarily interesting. And I think a lot is gonna be reset over this next seven years. Yeah, and um, I, I know we're running long on time, so I would just add that um, one of the, um, one of the uh, members uh, of Peak Prosperity put in this thread on the dollar um, a, a comment that I thought sort of summed it up, which was, you know, we're all seeking resiliency. And so, uh, you know, I myself want a life uh, such that if the dollar falls in half, I'm not wiped out. And if it doubles, then that's okay, too. But it's, it's, a, it's a peripheral issue, you know, because most of my assets are within my own control, and they're productive. And so I just want to say I'm not promoting the idea that people should um, speculate in currencies as a really wonderful way to, you know, make money. I think we're, I'm looking at it more like we're looking at this as an armchair speculation, but for goodness sakes, you know, um, invest in yourself, in human capital, social capital, and capital you control. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, the very last thing you would ever catch me speculating in are currencies. They are just, <laughs> you can lose, it's like that scene from South Park. Remember, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the kid takes his $100 from his grandma into the bank and he goes, oh, that's very good, son. You're going to open up a bank account. That's a very wise thing to do. We'll put your $100 into a money market account. We're going to cross-link it with some foreign currency pairs and it's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's Great. right. Great scene. So I don't speculate in foreign currencies for that reason. Uh, it, they're they're really highly volatile, but but it's it, it's of utmost importance that we understand the direction of these trends because as they go, so many other things are linked to them, and 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 it really will uh, shape all kinds of destinies for better or worse, depending on how things swirl around. So yeah, absolutely, invest in yourself. My other motto is uh, control everything you can and don't worry about the rest, because there's no point in worrying. So. 
you know, this is just something to keep in mind. It's not something to worry about, but it's absolutely something that will shape my actions and behaviors as I watch things unfold. Excellent. All right. Well, Charles, thank you so much for your time again. And I'm sure we're going to be revisiting this uh, extraordinarily rich topic over time. Yeah, we'll probably be hounded with lots of emails and um, comments that um, that are uh, add to the complexity and hopefully to the insights. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What a world we live in. It's fascinating. Yep. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Chris. Uh, my pleasure, Charles. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks.